welcome to the Boss Ladies Podcast. I'm Olivia Wary, and as a young female working in the industry of technology, I'm constantly struggling to find my voice and overcome challenges thrown my way. I've decided to have conversations with boss ladies in every industry to hear how they do it. Boss Ladies is intended to inspire women and men of all ages to overcome their fears, explore moonshot thinking, speak up for who they are and what they believe in, and move up in their respective industries. Every day we are faced with challenges, so it is my intention to empower you to get the advice you need by interviewing top executives who have been through it all. I'm here today with Abby Stein. So first of all, Abby, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here today. So just so everyone knows, Abby is an American transgender author, activist, blogger, model, rabbi, and speaker. Basically a total boss lady. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, she's the first openly transgender woman raised in a Hasidic community. So Abby, you have made two huge transitions in your life. First, leaving the Hasidic community, which that alone is a huge challenge. And then coming out as transgender. Can you tell us your story and, and how you found the courage to go through with these monumental and life-changing decisions? Okay. So right now we need about five hours so I can <laughs> merely touch on answering these questions, but I know we don't have that. So I'm going to try to condense them a bit. Um, first, I know a lot of people say like two transitions. And to be honest, I'm a bit guilty of that as well. The name of my blog, which to some extent is how I gained my first like Norari and I think I mispronounced that word, but that's fine. English <laughs> is my fourth language. So we're good. And I... That happened a bit uh, through my block, and that was called a second transition. So it's not entirely inaccurate, but personally, specifically now, I feel like it was just one big, I don't even know as much transition as journey, discovering who I am, and then starting to live that life. And the way I see it a lot is when people ask me sometimes, oh, you made a 180 degree turn in terms of Judaism, but then it seems like you came back a bit because I am more involved in, in Jewish community, not anything remotely of the way I grew up, but still involved in it a lot. So I tell people sometimes, and I see that in my life as a whole, I made a 180 degree turn, destroyed a circle, took certain parts of the circle and built a new one, which I think is very accurate when I look on my journey, which is also like the... the War transition is, is great and it's amazing, but when we talk about gender, when we talk about religion, but to me, it's not just transitioning. It's not just going from one place, leaving it and going to a new place. For me, it's going from one place, realizing the things that have stood in the way of being able to live a self-fulfilling life and being able to live a full life and then taking parts of it and moving on. Um, when I think about Judaism, for example, when I was growing up, in the ultra-Orthodox and the Hasidic community, we would always make fun of Jews who, what we would call cherry-pick Judaism and like pick and choose what they want to do. And for a while after I left, I almost still bought into that where, oh, there's like one specific way and I have to reject all of it. And then slowly I more and more came to appreciate that, no, I think cherry-picking our lives is the most beautiful thing that we can do. So that is just to give you an overall of like, which I think is, is an important perspective when we look on life because... It's not, I don't hate my background. I don't hate where I come from. Whenever people ask me if I could change something, would I change it? I don't know. I, I'm only who I am. I'm quite certain that I wouldn't, we wouldn't be sitting here today if I grew up somewhere else, or maybe we would in a very different setting. So I'm very proud of where I come from because it made me who I am. And it gave me the opportunity to continue doing what I'm doing. So to give the very short, to answer the question and give the, 
let's call it the exotic bit of my background. <laughs> um, so I come from a very small family. I have 12 siblings. My mom <laughs> has 10 and my dad has eight. It's funny. I come from a really big family, so I have one sibling. <laughs> that is really big, I would have to say. But yeah, I probably have more cousins than you have siblings. Sorry, <laughs> other way around. I probably have more more siblings than you have cousins, yes. which tends to be true for me um, in a lot of settings. But to be honest, what is maybe even more interesting is that in the community where I come from, that was nice. I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't deny it, like churching kids was on the bigger side, but it was probably the equivalency of having three or maybe four kids, what we would call, let's say, in mainstream American or even mainstream Jewish um, society. I grew up, as you have said, in the Hasidic community, which is, I think the easiest way for me to describe it is that it's geographically New York City and culturally, I call it the 18th century Eastern Europe, more like a pretend 18th century <laughs> Eastern Europe and kind of like recreating this hypothetical idea that the Hasidic community has in their head of this supposed utopia slash dystopia that supposedly existed back in Eastern Europe where everyone just followed all the rules and there was this hypothetical imaginative Jewish society where everyone ate, you know, their gefilte fish and <laughs> everyone did and everyone followed all the rules which never really existed in the way they're imagining it but that is their idea and as a result of that they see that time as almost idealistic. They stick to the language. The dress code that they have has very little to do with religion. And pretty much all of it is aristocratic 18th century dress code from the type of socks that they wear, the long coats and the hats. I mean, there are some things that are obviously religiously um, influenced, but so much of it is just that. I also grew up speaking Yiddish. And Yiddish was the only language that we spoke at home, the only language we spoke in school. Um, we did also learn Hebrew, though it was mostly, it wasn't the same as modern Hebrew. I was a bit exposed to modern Hebrew because I was really family, but at least the Hebrew that we learned, we called it Lashon Kodesh, which means holy tongue, which was just uh, a, a biblical version of Hebrew. Um, so even the Hebrew that we did study was pretty much useless outside of our community, kind of at the point that I'm trying to make. I would even say that I kind of studied Aramaic, a language that country popular believe is actually not fully extinct, but Aramaic, for those that don't know, used to be the lingua franca of ancient Mesopotamian Middle East for about a thousand year period. And it's also the language of a lot of Jewish sects. It's the language of, for Christians, it's the language of Jesus. And for Jews, it's the language of the Talmud, which is a uh, second and sixth century rabbinic law code, um, and so on. So for all intents and purposes, English personally is my fourth language. And how old or, were you when you learned English? I So in school, we learned the ABCs, even that only because the government was forcing them, not that they actually, education is a big problem in the Hasidic community where they don't offer the education even required by law. But we studied a bit of ABCs, I would say are English education where we were supposed to study English went probably to a second or third grade level. We also had math that went probably also same, like third, fourth grade. I don't know which, when do you learn division? Solve long division? Is that? First, second, third? Oh, first, no, whatever. I don't know. It's third grade, yeah, third fourth grade. grade. I think it's third, fourth grade. Yeah. And that was the last level that we studied. And that was when we were in eighth grade. And that's it. From ninth grade and on, it was only Jewish education. So that is very much the, the kind of culture. And another good way to look on it is, is the culture that the Hasidic community created, where so much of pop culture doesn't exist. And what I mean by doesn't exist, it's not that it's hated. I don't know. What was your favorite show growing up? 
like Hannah Montana. I was a okay. loser. <laughs> and now that's great. But shows like that, or like I would say, take the most Jewish Jewish show of the 90s, like Seinfeld. Yep. It wasn't something that was forbidden. I didn't know it existed. That's the kind of culture that we grew up in. The forbidden band for me to listen to was a band called the Miami Boys Choir, which is an ultra-Orthodox Jewish band, but it was in English and it was considered not Hasidic and not kosher enough. So that was the things that were forbidden. Shows or movies or even stuff like, the only thing I knew about Halloween, for example, was that there's this one day in the fall where people throw eggs. It wasn't that, oh, this is a holiday that we don't celebrate. I was unaware of its existence. And that is, I think, the best way for people to try to understand how the Hasidic community lives. And obviously, there are differences. It's not an homogenous culture. And and there are differences between families and communities and neighborhoods. Everything that I'm sharing is just my own experience, which, however, wasn't unique. And yes, I do come from Hasidic version of royalty, like my... um, Father is like a 10 generation, five different ways, um, because we all marry each other. I'm my own cousin. My son is my cousin. It's, yeah, um, many times over. But from I'd love like, to see a family tree later. Um, I don't have a family tree. We only have a family bush. <laughs> Got it. We have family. It's like, I try to explain it sometimes to people. And people are like, just like, what are you talking about? Like, in my family alone, so for example, my sister just got married a few months ago. And she married this guy who... I mean, we technically, like, we wouldn't consider them cousins. We share direct ancestor 150 years ago, but that wouldn't even, that's like, obviously, otherwise it wouldn't happen because they have to be, again, Hasidic version of royalty coming from Hasidic rabbis. But also my new sister-in-law, my new brother-in-law, my sister's husband, is my older sister-in-law's first cousin. Gotcha. So they married into a similar family. A similar, same family. Same family. But even more, my mom has a twin, an identical twin. and. One of her sons married my sister-in-law and now my brother-in-law. So they're aunt. <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. I have another one of my sister that's married to my mom's first cousin. So her mother-in-law is a great aunt. I'm so lost right now. <laughs> In my extended family, I'm aware of a few uncles and nieces that got married. So yeah, that is that is one big family, if you will. One very yeah, but that happens mostly. And that is not even that true in in the bigger Hasidic community. It's more common in rabbinic families. Mm -hmm. It's it's very much like European royalty, where they all married each other. Yeah, I will take one example: the Twersky family. And sorry if I'm boring anyone Mm -hmm. with talking about these details. But the Twersky family is, I would call them the Hasidic equivalent of the Habsburg dynasty, which at the peak of European royalty, everyone from German, the German kings, and then they. British and the Spanish and the Russian Tsar were all descendants from the same family. So that Tversky family is like the majority, literally the majority of Hasidic Rebbe's, which are supreme leaders today, are descendants of that family. And that was my grandma. And so like, we're all related to everyone. So that is kind of a bit, and that did affect a bit the standing and the kind of things that we did um, as a community. So that was the community. Um, and talking of that, and I think another part that is going to come up probably later, which is why I want to talk about it now, and it's very important in a similar fashion as when it comes to the LGBT community. So since I remember myself, I never had what a lot of, I think, queer people would say like aha moment where like they wake up and they're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm, I'm gay, I'm lesbian, I'm a girl, I'm bi, whatever, any of these things. Because I remember starting to realize that people think I'm a boy. Since I remember myself, that didn't make any sense to me. Like, at what age are we talking? I remember thinking about it already when I was three to four years old. 
And there's stories in my book where I go into detail and everyone is welcome to buy and I don't want to give everything away. I'm going to, I have some questions about the book. We'll get to the book, of course. So (laughs) where I talk about it, but I, I have very conscious memories from a very young age where these things came into play. And that was a problem in several different ways because here's the thing. I sometimes wish that the Hasidic community when I was growing up was homophobic. In other words, I would have wished that they hated, that there was hateful things against the LGBT community. Not that I ever think that is okay, but that would have meant, I would have known about it. Exactly. Good job. High five. (laughs) I didn't even know that they existed. Like I really didn't. I didn't know the word transgender until I started leaving the community and I went online, which is one of the worst things that you can do in the Hasidic community. And I went online for the first time when I was 20. And that's when I learned that there's other people like me. So How, that, what did you search? What did you Google? Um, I searched if a boy can turn into a girl in Hebrew. I didn't speak any English. And I found, that's when I read the, the, the Hebrew Wikipedia page on transgender. And that was the first time I was introduced to the concept. And that was when I was 20. Before that, I didn't know. And it wasn't just that I didn't know about that experience. It's also that the Hasidic community is extremely gendered. Like you're talking, the roles of man and woman are set in stone, and it doesn't occur to anyone that there's could be any overlap or, or there's no flexibility in that whatsoever in any way or form. Um, and, and yes, they are very patriarchal and, and, and sexy society. But here's one other thing, one other final thing that I want to say, and then I will let you go on to your next questions. No, no, no. But one of the things that I get a lot, and it's very easy for people when they listen to a story like mine or any other story, they listen to a story from people who grew up Amish or Mormon or any other fundamentalist community. And it's very easy to go, oh, yeah, these fundamentalists, we are not like them. But then when you start to boil it down, I think that is the part of my story and specifically my book that I really hope people can relate to. Because so much of what we do where it's quite intense exists in the general society in so many ways. People, I've been asked a few times, what is the thing that shocked me most about mainstream society after I left? And in all honesty, it was sexism. I was used to, yes, I knew the Hasidic community is going to be sexism. I knew that in my community, there's a lot of other, there's homophobia and there's other things. I was convinced before I left that in the outside world, like, why would there be sexism? I was shocked to start realizing even before I transitioned. And then once I transitioned, it was just like WTF. It was just like, (laughs) what is going on here? Like, I'm like still at a point where every time I get catcalled, which happens almost on a daily basis, I freak out. But then when I talk to people who, I don't want to say we're socialized as girls from a young age, everyone was like, yeah, duh, like kind of, it's a part of life. And I can't accept that. I have uh, one final anecdote. I know I said before, but um, just like I have uh, during my presentations and I've given a few hundred speeches in the last few years, there's a video that I like to show of a Hasidic wedding. And it's a scene that really helps people understand the gender dynamics in the Hasidic community. And what they usually see is a bride who is fully covered, who is standing in the middle of a room where three sides of the room are men and the men are dancing and she's holding a rope and her grandfather is dancing with her. People look at that and they were like, what is going on? And the man are dancing, the bride is barely moving. And I explained that, that that comes from an understanding of sexuality where women are sexual, as in like the sexual objects, who don't have any sexual desires. FYI, women don't have sexual desires. So if anyone ever feels they do, something is wrong with you. <laughs> I do not believe that. But that is a bit of like, and, and I don't know if they, it's not an actual belief. And I think people do understand that some women like in, in, if you will ask them, maybe they understand it, but the way society works, the one of the biggest laws that come up, which is what is very visible in that video, is that women are allowed to look on men 
dancing, but men are not allowed to look on women dancing. And specifically, the result of that is that it's the woman's obligation not to dance in front of men. Now, yeah, it's a bit of a radical idea, but then you start reading any mainstream newspaper and you're going to find similar ideas, maybe to not such a radical way, but it's the woman's fault and women are sexualized and men are not sexualized and women's responsibility to address modesty, like all of these ideas. And, and the same in religion, the same in so many other things that we, I think from the part where us people who grew up fundamentalists could help general society. It's not just by telling our stories and obviously hopefully hoping the, helping the LGBT community, but also helping people realize with radical examples that that exists. Okay, now enough. I'm going to let you get back to your questions. I <laughs> no, know you have more. So this was a long and, answer to one question. Well, I want to actually dive into something you just sure. said. So you talked a little bit about how you were expecting when you left the community and you were kind of exploring everything pretty much for the first time, including the internet, TV, everything that comes with pop culture and yeah. society. You know, you said that you noticed that there were, or you didn't expect there to be so much sexism outside of the Hasidic community. I mean, I would say outside of religious community. By the time I left, I was already aware that we're not the only fundamentalist community, but yeah, same well, point. Yeah. So I guess in addition to sexism and pretty much in just in life in general, I love to talk about allyship on the podcast. So I feel like this is a good opportunity. Like, what do you think that we as humans in society can be doing to be better allies for the LGBT community, whether it be in the workplace, friends in general? What are your thoughts on that? Uh, first of all, I love this question. And I want to say this is already a good example. The fact that you were asking this question and being aware of it, thinking of it is the first step but it's far from enough. So I also think there's two steps here. There's the part of acceptance. I don't even like, I don't, I'm not even going to use the word tolerance. I hate tolerance. Tolerance, my go-to is tolerance is for lactose. You know, some people tolerate it, some people don't. You can add nuts to it if you want. Not people. People are not to be tolerated. But I think the first step is obviously recognition and then like accepting people. And so much can be done. Obviously to do that is which is like to be supportive. And I think we live in a world specifically um, in, in, in the US and in so many other democratic societies where at least I, I think by now everyone can be exposed enough. If you are not, then there are, there are amazing places to educate yourself. If you work in media, check out GLAD, which is a, an organization that is supporting LGBT media. Check out some of their guidelines. Do some of these things. And, and that is just a basic understanding. And I'm not expecting everyone to become an LGBT, um, professional and to know everything because you can't. But, there is enough to just know the basics and know how to deal. Educate yourself. And some, that when someone comes out to you, you can be as supportive as possible. And I will say it quite frankly, if you don't educate yourself, I can promise you that even if you try to be supportive, you're going to fail. Because if you don't know what's going on, and, and in all honesty, I don't expect you to fully understand it because frankly, you can't. Someone who is not LGBTQ or even someone who is, I don't think that gay people fully understand, even lesbians forget about trans people and the same with everyone else. It's like what I say about asexuality. I don't get it, but I don't think I have to. That is not the point. The point is that we have to learn to not just accept and tolerate, but to celebrate everyone. And that is where I think the next step comes in. It's not just enough to be okay with people. It's learn how to do to fully bring them in, to fully make them part of your community. Think about so many things that we say in the day-to-day -day life, how 
even if they're not discriminating against LGBT people, so many places, specifically workplaces, still have, for example, heteronormative culture. Stop assuming. And even if you will argue statistically, yes, when someone got engaged, statistically, there's a strong chance they got engaged to someone who identifies on the opposite gender. Don't assume, ever. Stuff like that. And it's where that goes beyond just respecting when people talk to you. It's also being aware of the culture that we are creating. And then obviously, we got to move on to the part which has been my latest focus, which is moving on to the part of celebrating our identities. Um, and I actually just today, as we're recording that, probably not the day that this is going to air, but <laughs> I did an interview with newspaper in Arizona, because I'm, I'm going to speak there. And one of the statements that I made that they, thankfully, they, they put it in, one of the quotes that I really love, is that it, it's time to move on from tolerance to celebration, from acceptance to celebration. And I was saying, because a lot of people tell me sometimes that, yes, I grew up Hasidic, I left, now just move on, enjoy your life and move on. Why do I keep talking about it? And I'm like, you're right. I keep talking about it because we got to move on in the sense of we got to move on from a society where we tolerate, where we accept, we welcome, that is far from enough. We got to have a society where we celebrate people because it is beautiful. I think that having a society that has a rainbow, and I mean that literally and metaphorically, <laughs> but a community where there are diversity, it is beautiful and it is worthy of celebration. I did it for myself where when I came out, I threw a party, literally. I always say that I want the reaction from people. I, I say it for parents because I work with parents a lot, but the same in a workplace. The reaction when someone comes out to you shouldn't be like, oh, I think I'm gay, I'm lesbian, I'm trans. It be, okay, that's great. I still love you. It might sound like good, but that's not the answer. The answer that we need, that is amazing. Do you want to have a party? <laughs> Obviously, only if they want and don't out them to people they don't want to. But that is the environment that we need to have. An environment where it's normal. An environment where... We take people's sexuality, let's take it like clothing, though we just people on clothing a lot. But I, I, because I also, we don't want to create a society where it doesn't matter because it does, it doesn't matter. We can't be blind to it. It's the same people who say, oh, they don't see race. If you don't see race, you're a racist. If you don't see sexuality, you're a homophobic. I can promise you that. But to imagine, I don't know, some, but someone wears a really nice dress, you're not going to judge them on them, but you're going to still, you're going to appreciate that. That is when someone, just like celebrating people for being who they are, just like you celebrate straight couples and in the community that we live today, even more because it's needed. I hope that answered your question. It does answer my question. And I think it's really beautiful what you said about focusing on celebration, because I don't think there's anything more, I'm going to use the word magical, than someone Sorry. being than someone being their true self in being whatever way that exactly. is. So I love that exactly. answer. It's, it's, uh, I think I mentioned that to you before we started recording. And it is a really important part where I tell people a lot when they're afraid, how, I'm gonna, how my friends going to react? How's my family going to react? And, you, and I'm like, you can be a family member. You can be a friend if there's no real you. And I know that for myself, I wasn't able to really make friends and to really be there for my friends when I wasn't me. So it's not just that by coming out, you are doing it's better for yourself. It's better for everyone around you. And accepting it is better for everyone. Yeah, I completely Sorry, agree. Celebrating with that. it. No, I, yeah. I couldn't agree with that more. I would assume that you didn't have access to any transgender role models as you were growing up, right? I think that's safe to assume. I was unaware that transgender people exist. Mostly. I will mention something. I didn't have a real role model, and I'm not going to go into details because I want people to buy the book and read about it. But 
not as, as much a role model. I did find a 16th century Czech when I was 15 that kind of roughly spoke about a hypothetical concept that it's roughly is something similar. Let's call it a 16th century equivalency to being trans. And that really helped, which also make me, made me appreciate uh, how, why role models are so important. But in real, re- in reality, no, I didn't have any role models. Well, so that's kind of what I want to like elaborate on. It's like, who are your mentors and role models now? And do you have any since obviously then aside from that example, it was a lot harder to find one. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't hard. I just didn't find you any. You just didn't <laughs> find any. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I will say, though, specifically at that time, and I didn't have any words for it, I I wouldn't, I didn't see myself as trans. I just saw myself as a woman who is misunderstood, which is very much what a lot of trans women feel, <laughs> a woman or a girl or whatever you want to call it. And and at that time, I will say I had role models in the sense of what it means to be a woman. I always admire my mom, which I still think is an angel and an amazing person. And and I still like I cook, and then her recipes are always guiding me. Her my, when I host people, my ideas are like what will my mom do, and so many of things. And, and yes, we have religious disagreements, but as a human being, what it means to be there for family, be there for friends, I've learned so much from her. So, and in a big way, she was my role model in the sense of a strong woman to admire and to look up to. Um, and and of that, I have a lot today. But I would say there's two major, I would say in, in trans community that I would call maybe more than two um, role models. And one of them is Jenny Boylan. I don't know if you've heard of her. She is a trans author, relatively a pioneer. She transitioned in 2001, 2002. She's been very big. She was on, on, on I'm Kate on the show that was, very good and very problematic without going into details, um, the Caitlyn Jenner show. Um, she is also a professor at uh, Barnard, just later Columbia. So I got to know her when I was a student at Columbia. And she gave me a lot, everything from my first media tips when I suddenly found myself in the spotlight that wasn't, I wasn't prepared for that in any way or form. She helped me with that. She gave me tips on writing. She was one of the people actually when we met the first time and we're talking about writing. She's like, you should, you shouldn't publish a book until five years after you came out, which I almost listened to her like five quarters because, (laughs) sorry, if that's a board, five quarters is not really a thing. Sorry, four Four fifths Four is fifths. better okay. because I, I waited until like the, I came out November, November 11, 2015 and my book release date is November 12, 2019. So it's four years, but I, I got so much from her. And in general, the role model, she has published a lot of books. She is a, a definitely, I would say, at least in my, one of the big literary figures of our generation, regardless of what she writes a lot of fiction. She also wrote three memoirs about her experience. She's published like 10 or 20 books by now. She's published a lot of books. And other person, and also I want to say like I've learned from her a lot about, I don't know, I wouldn't call it religion. Religion is, I don't have, still religion is not something I would identify with necessarily, but but spiritual and specifically cultural of like how to be able to look on a culture. She also comes from a culture that wasn't i mean i think her family isn't was never fundamental she didn't have that issue but also comes from a culture that as a whole has been using homophobic and transphobic statements and being able to look on that and still be like oh but these are parts that are beautiful and i want to hold on to that and that is very much what i am trying and 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 i think i've had relatively quite a lot of success in being able to do for myself and for other people i guess two other people i would mention um 
Her name is Joy Layden, uh, who is a Jewish trans woman, who also an author who wrote a few amazing books. She is, she was the first trans woman or trans person at all to be employed by an Orthodox Jewish institution, not ultra-Orthodox, but Orthodox. She teaches at Stern College for Women, which is the Women's College of Yeshiva University, the flagship institution of the modern Orthodox Jewish community. Also an amazing woman that I got to meet a few times, and she's also an amazing poet. She's published a lot of poetry. And then another one is um, who is actually a really close friend, Yiska Smith, who is also, she didn't grow up Hasidic, but she was Hasidic for part of her life. I would say in, in the trans community, these three are probably my biggest role models, um, both on a, on a, on a people to look up to, but also people that I reach out to. If I have an issue that I think I need someone specifically, I have a lot of other people in my life, but, but it's something that I feel specific. I need a trans person to talk to. Um, they're all people that have been amazingly helpful and supportive. I think that's awesome. And it's great that you've been able to find that now. In yeah. a way that you weren't before. And, and, and I'm trying in, in some ways to be able to give that to other people as well. And I, I have that. I can say at least on a weekly basis, I wouldn't say daily, but at least on a weekly basis, people reaching out on not even a lot of people grew up Orthodox and LGBTQ as a whole, not just trans, but even people who didn't grow up Orthodox, people grew up in other fundamentalist communities and people didn't grow up necessarily religious. And and my time is unfortunately limited and I wish I have this idea in my mind of a bigger support group that will support people, trans people come from fundamentalist backgrounds. And, and I think I've been doing it a bit. Um, maybe if I magically have more time eventually in the future and the financial access to do that, I would hope to see that off the ground. But it, it's it's important. I know for my own personal life and I see it, it's, it's so important having people to both look up to, but also talk to one-on-one people that can tell you that it's possible it's i think one of the hardest things that a person could go through um is transition and that is even if your family and community supports you forget about if your family and community doesn't support you which is unfortunately still the rule rather than the exception um yeah have you ever thought about starting a podcast Ask Abby. I can see it now. <laughs> Serious. Dear Abby, the amount of people who make that joke in emails, Dear Abby, because of the columnist, the columnist, like Dear <laughs> Abby used to be a very popular, I think it was the 60s or the 70s. Okay. Very popular um, advice column, I think. I think you like should that. totally start something along um, those lines. Because think about it, your, your one-on-one conversations, while they are private and you are helping someone one-on-one could be helping a lot of people. It could be. And, and in a big way, these are the speeches. I've said I've given a few hundred. I, yeah. I think somewhere around 300, I've lost kind of exact track wow. of speeches over the past few years. And at every single one, every single speech, there's been at least one person and usually more than one person who speaks up either publicly or privately on how that affects them. And, and a lot of it has been doing that. So I've never tried podcasts. There was a very short time when I decided I'm going to do twice a week where I do have a lot of questions that people have asked and just make a short one minute video, very unprofessional answering them. I made four of these there on my YouTube channel. And then I ran, I don't have the time. And I think (laughs) hypothetically, if I win the lottery or I get a grant and I can hire someone to be on top of it, that would be great to do that. And I, I would be open to do it. And podcasts, I think, will take a lot more work, which is like, I really admired it. And I'm like, I know how much work goes into that, which is why I'm aware that at the moment, I I can't see myself doing that. 
I, I do hope to continue. And, and for now, I'm doing like I've, I've done a lot of interviews. I've done a lot of videos. They are some of the short profile kind of interviews slash videos that I've done have gotten like I did a video with now this that got in total, I think, three to four million views on Facebook alone. I've done a video of Pop Sugar that throughout they reposted a few times and I got like eight million, I think, views in total. So on a more serious note, are you in touch with anyone in your family? Family, family shunning. Damn it! When it gets late, sometimes when it's late, I I I miss it. My my English being my fourth language kicks in, and I'm having trouble on the word I'm looking for. But family You're translating through all things. Yeah, I'm like going from language. But family isolation. But I don't think that's the word. I'm looking like being shunned by fam by by family ostracized. Is, uh, family ostracization. <laughs> that that word. Yeah, um, is is a big problem in the LGBT community. I mean, it's a problem for people leaving religious communities in, as a whole, but specifically in the Hasidic community community relatively there has been a lot of progress in that and mostly because there have been so many which is another way how i know that exposure is so important and talking about stories is so important because more the more people who left the community the more the less of a shame it became to the family and more families started being accepting like even when i when i was younger and i remember anyone who left the community was shunned um, that was the rule now just 10 years later, 15 years later, the rule is the opposite. And most people that I know who come out, at least in one way or another, still have some relation, not who come out, sorry, people who leave the community. We use the same lingo also coming out uh, for people who leave the community. Now, in my family, when I came out, and I, and I did, I, have a, I had a long conversation with my dad, and I describe it in the epilogue in the book. And I really try to explain it to him. And I will, again, leave the details to the book, but ultimately... My parents stopped talking to me then, and I haven't, I haven't really had a conversation with them in the last four years. I do have a very close relationship with my sibling, with two of my siblings. Sorry, not all of them, and a few of my cousins. The way I like to look at the silver lining, most people that I know don't have more than two siblings and don't have more than ten, ten cousins that I'm in touch with. So I like to focus on the positive parts, and and that is beautiful, and and made me appreciate the family members that um do still speak to me and i think that's very important i also have an amazing what we call chosen family with all the cheesiness that it comes with but <laughs> i have never i i mean the, the kind of deep friendships i mean i think in general it could be it's a stereotype and it could be it's just because i always had trouble both making friends making friends with men with, with like men and, and also making friends while i was presenting not as a woman and and that was hard as well but now i've made so many deeper relationships, mostly with women. I, I'm not denying it. The majority of my friends are, are women, but it's just, I don't know if it's a stereotype or it's just easier. And, and, and the lack of toxic masculinity allows us to be so much closer. And, and I'm so grateful for the friends that I have that are my family in every way and every form. And it's amazing. And, and all my communities from progressive liberal Jewish communities I've been part of, like Columbia, my community and, and friends from Columbia and, and queer, uh, both Jewish and non-Jewish, just queer, queer community as a whole. Um, or the community I started, I started with a friend, a community called Sacred Space, which is a space for women and non-binary people from all different backgrounds. We actually, but we meet uh, the first Sunday of every month for now at The Wing, which is a woman's co-working space. We actually meet here in Brooklyn at The Wing Dumbo. 
Um, and it's an amazing space. And we have regulars and we have we get about 50, 40 to 50 people every time. People, women who come together to share their experiences. We, it's legitimately a, a rainbow. We get people from every background, every religious background, every cultural background, sexual background. We um, have straight people. We have lesbians and, 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 and bisexual and, and, and trans people and people of every background. And, and, and these are all beautiful. And, and I really, I think ironically and and again maybe i'm too optimistic and looking on silver linings and really bad situations but i think ironically the my family rejecting me or, or most of my family made me appreciate so much more so many of the deep relationships that i do have that are beautiful and amazing i love you know we started this episode and you were sort of talking about how this has really been a journey and i love thinking about how while there have been hardships in your journey, there have been so many positives like coming out with a new community yeah. and new family. Um, so I, think I love to focus fun. on the positive. They are yeah. so much more fun. I couldn't agree more. So before I go any further, I have to ask, can you tell us a little about the book? What can you tell us about the book? I think, I, I think I've already told said too much. <laughs> I don't know. I got to ask my um, um, editor or publicist if she still likes me because maybe <laughs> this was a, like, we're trying to get people to buy it, not to get the whole story. <laughs> I am. I, I I could say a bit. The book is it's a coming of age story, which is also important. I think for some some reason, some of the reviews that we have been getting have assumed that it's a coming out story, and then people get a bit disappointed when the focus is all about is mostly about growing up. It's a very intertwined story. I really tried to show all sides. I do have a bit of focus. People will read about the positive parts of growing up, even in such a fundamentalist community, whatever it's the food or the holidays or the family life, which does have beautiful parts. I mean, obviously, I think that the negative parts outweigh the positive parts, but there are some beautiful parts to it. A lot of it is focusing on a lot of details that I think people might find interesting from from talking about growing up in fundamentalist communities. Um, I think it's talking a lot about the different cultures that New York City has to offer. It talks about arranged marriage. I talk a lot about sex ed or better so the lack thereof. Um, there is a story about a teenage affair in an all boys school where there was no sex ed whatsoever. So I think some people will find that interesting at all. Interesting also as well. I think what is ultimately my biggest goal with this book is because I really think there's a lot of different parts that come together. And I hope that everyone could see this, not just as a cool story. I know I'm not, I'm not stupid. I know it's exotic. I tell people, yes, I know that my before and after picture are more exotic than the most before <laughs> and after pictures. I like, you look at a picture and you see, yeah, I'm not, I know I'm aware of that. And, and I'm even aware that maybe I'm exploiting it when it's important to do so. But I, I think it goes a lot beyond that. And you got everything. I, I The first chapter talks about my family lineage, or as I said, my family Bush. Focus a lot on family life, a lot of cool stories, a, a prayer that I had when I was, when I that I said when I was nine years old that I want to be a girl and, and so on. Wow, I'm very excited to read it. <laughs> uh, and everyone, I'm going to put a link in the episode description for everyone to pre-order it. So everyone should definitely get a copy because like you said, this is just a preview and yeah. the book is the place to get all the, the good stuff. All the juicy details. All the juicy details, like the, the affair. <laughs> there, that is, I think, the most ju the juiciest chapter in the book. I'll try not to skip straight to it, but I may be tempted. <laughs> I wouldn't tell you which chapter it is. <laughs> fair, that's fair. Um, so what was your day-to-day -day like 
eight years ago versus what your day to day is like eight now. years ago let's see where was i eight years ago eight years ago was to ah uh, my brain 2011 2011 okay it was right after i finished my rabbinical studies i was in marriage uh, we were expecting my son who was born early 2012 on a day-to-day basis let's see i woke up at that time i'm fairly certain half of the day i still studied to study more because there's always more to study rabbinical <laughs> studies and other things. Half of the day I was teaching, um, half teaching, half tutoring students, Talmud and, and, and religious schools. What should I say? Three prayers a day in synagogue with 10 people at least and usually more. Entire life was revolving around religious life from the kind of clothing that we wore, which was legitimate, literally black and white, not a metaphor, but literally <laughs> black and white. Um, Everything around, I mean, the nicest part was probably family life. Um, yeah, what am I missing? Am I missing any details that you want me to describe of my day-to-day life? No, I, I think that's fascinating. And then what's the contrast of it now? <laughs> contrast is not the right word because it's, <laughs> it's, I think like I said before, it, that ball is destroyed and there's a whole new one. It's not even remotely the same in, in most of it. Um, let's put it this way. If I have to say it in, in one cheesy statement... Eight years ago, my day-to-day life was following a life that other people told me that I had to do without knowing there's any difference. Now it's following a life that I've created for myself with the help of so many other people. And it's, let's put it this way, my life then and my life now included a community. Then it was a community that was forced on me and now it's a community that was chosen by me. And I think that is one of the most beautiful parts. Wow, that was so eloquently put. Thank you. Just to touch on a little bit more on your day-to-day now, your career right now has so many different components, right? So like at the beginning, I mentioned writing, activism, being a model, a speaker, still a rabbi, right? Let me just say one thing about the modeling part. I mean, I I don't deny it. I mean, just look it up. (laughs) I've done stuff with Vogue where I am, promise you I'm wearing some clothes. (laughs) Um. I think so. Um, and and I've done other things. But I mean, I mostly I haven't, I want to say this, I've, I have done a lot of media work. I haven't done any commercial modeling yet, at least. I always tell people if I get an offer that I can refuse, if you pay me a million dollars, I will do it. <laughs> AKA putting it out there, pay me a million dollars. But it's not something that I'm pursuing that much. And, and I want to say that because I have, I do want to say I have come to appreciate kind of the industry a bit. It sounds maybe weird, um, but I have learned a lot about it. And I think it's, it's, I think it takes courage for everyone to be in front of a camera and to be vulnerable and and regardless of what comes with it. Um, So yeah, anyway, continue. Well, no, I'm I'm just kind of curious, like, where do you sort of see yourself in the next five to 10 years? So my cheesy answer, again, sticking to the term of, although I'm lactose intolerant, but sticking to the the part of, of cheesy, I say that. Five years ago, more like more accurately, seven years ago, I couldn't have dreamt in my wildest dream that I will be where I am today in a positive way. I, I one I hope that I will be in five years and ten years in a place that I can't even so good that I can't even imagine how. I don't know how that will be because I do have a very active imagination as opposed to seven years ago when I wasn't aware of what is out there. I'm now fairly aware of what's going on in the world, but I don't know everything. So who knows? I would say I would love by then, I would love to write a few more books. 
I would love to see um, body activism and the support groups that I have a bit started to see taking off in a more substantial way. Sacred space that I mentioned, the kind of small side project I've started, I would love to see that turn into a bigger space and a community of women where people could come together, where the point is that everyone could bring parts of their own identity and culture, let go of what they don't appreciate, what they can't celebrate anymore and celebrate the parts that they want. I do um, focus a lot on public policy. It's I study poli-sci and I have been working a lot on different campaigns and I'm helping out a friend now who is running for Congress and, and, and so on. So I would love to see where my career and where my so-called day job in public policy takes me and nothing is off limits and everything could happen. Nothing has to happen. As I say, we'll see where that goes, wherever that is nonprofit or NGOs or, or, or with the government or for the government or who knows? I can neither confirm nor deny any any, pl- any potential future plans. But that is definitely on on kind of career wise. That is, I, I think where I'm headed. But who knows? I also have a lot of weird passions from linguistics to genealogy and geography. Um, I am also a rabbi, and I have used, which is which is weird for me to hear myself say that because while. I got I got technically ordained. I never finished like the all the uh, logistical parts that I had to study, but I finished the actual studies and got like the legal like rabbinical ordination. Um, and I have I for a long time I felt very uncomfortable with that title, but I've come to appreciate it more and more in a progressive and liberal, specifically progressive and and let's call it grassroots uh, Jewish environment where I am able to use that. And I would love to see where that takes me more. I don't plan on being what we would call a pulpit rabbi. Um, but I mean, obviously, my my leadership in, in sacred space is done in the capacity of my religious education. Though, again, I wouldn't nev- I wouldn't identify myself as religious in any way. I am very spiritual. Um, sorry, I'm very culturally involved and also spiritual. I, I think Judaism has a lot of great messages and a lot of bad ones. But I focus on the great ones, which I think are could be beautiful if people choose to do that. So that is another thing that I'm constantly exploring. Let's put it this way, in very short. Life is a journey, and it's a constant journey. And I don't want it to end. I think the day I figure out everything in my life, it's just going to get bored. <laughs> like, part, that's part of the fun. Yeah. It's like knowing if, I'm, if I know exactly how every day is going to look for the rest of my life, try to imagine that. Well, you did for a while. Exactly. And I hated it. <laughs> I hated it. I don't like that. It doesn't, it's part of the fun of life. And, and again, as opposed to what I was told growing up, fun, I think, is an important part of life. Just having fun and taking risks within limits, but seeing where our lives are taking us. Yeah. Well, maybe having a plan, a logistical plan a bit. I mean, I think it is important to know a bit where we're going, but I don't I don't have to know exactly where I'm going. Yeah. I mean, my mom, I think she was, or I should say, won't mention her age. I was in middle school and she completely switched career paths, got her master's in counseling and decided to, or in psychology and decided to become a counselor. So, and apparently she wrote a book. So. And now she just wrote a book on embracing your psychic gifts. So That's amazing. <laughs> These are all amazing uh, parts because like, I know, for example, I'm actually, I know two, actually two act, amazing actors an actor and actress that I've worked with personally over the past few years. One of them kind of played me, which was first awkward, but I mean, we came close. Um, and and <laughs> that's the, awesome. And a small like theater production in LA. <laughs> that should be your aha moment. Like <laughs> someone oh, else someone played, played me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was interesting. 
Um, and then another one is just a good friend, and and we we he consulted on a show that I was a bit in, like very little involved, a Netflix show that's coming out in a few months. And both of them are lawyers who you're talking someone who went through law school, passed the bar and everything, and then just decided after that to become actors, which is not something you expect to see. And, and but I I have such an appreciation for that. It's someone deciding that hey, what I thought I like, I don't like, and I want to find something else. And it's I think it's one of the most beautiful part things of the so-called human condition, to use a philosophical term. Oh, I also love philosophy, <laughs> which I could like hypothetically, I could see myself being a guest lecturer in philosophy at a university. I actually would love that. Hey, so honestly, as long as you're moving forward, I don't think it matters which direction exactly. you're going. <laughs> or you take all directions. Or you take all directions. Exactly. You're an actress who plays a philosopher who's giving a guest lecture on spiritual I don't know if I would enjoy soul searching. <laughs> Everything sounds amazing, but I don't know if I would love it as an act. Okay, as an fair, 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 fair. Make it a reality. As I've said, I appreciate acting. I, I'm just, it's not for me. So my last sort of deeper question for you, and then I have one How more. deep are we getting? Damn, this hole is getting deep. <laughs> it's not that deep. I think we've, we've gone as deep as we're going to go. I want to know just what advice you may have for anyone struggling with some of the challenges you've overcome. The most important thing, you're not alone. I know it could seem like it. I know the world is too big. You are not. Whatever it is, I, I always want to say people, you can reach out to me and you can. Unfortunately, as I've said, my time is limited, but at least I know the resources. I know where to send you, whatever it's people leaving a fundamentalist religious community, whatever it is, transitioning on the LGBTQ people or just, I get people, people struggling with their spiritual practices, but anything. And, and thankfully I've made the connection. I know at least the organizations and the groups and individuals that can help and support. But that is, I think, one of the most important messages. You're not alone and don't be alone. Please. I don't, I don't have another way of saying that. The, the, and, and I'm sorry for mentioning that. And I want to say that if anyone, I'm going to mention suicide, whatever. So if anyone wants, they can, they could just stop listening. Sorry for saying that. But unfortunately, the suicide rates among in the LGBT, specifically trans community and people leaving fundamentalist communities is way too high. And it's almost like it's a piece of advice, but also like a request, reach out to people. There are people who, there are entire organizations dedicated to helping. And and I, I've seen that again and again. One of the biggest issues is people who are either ashamed or don't know and don't reach out. And that is sometimes the, the, the biggest problem. There are people who will support you. I think another piece, something that I've mentioned before a lot, which while I think family is important and I think community and friends are important, it's just as important and, and in my opinion, more important to realize that if you are not you, if there's no you, there's no friend, there's no family member, there's no sibling, there's no child, there's no grandchild. Dare I say, there's no parent if there's no you. There has to be a you. And I know it sounds narcissistic and selfish, but it's simple science, so to speak. It's simple reality. And that is also very important to know for people. On a more fun note, go out. I, I think people who are going through a hard time sometimes are too hard on themselves. And they were like, oh, I can't go to a bar right now because my life is... S-H-A-I-T, that I say that my, my <laughs> life is bad. But I, I can't, and I'm like, no, 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 do that. The amount of queer people I've taken to Cubby Hall or Henrietta Hudson, which are lesbian bars in the village, which I think every straight woman should also check out because if you want to have a great night out without a lot of guys leaning on you, 
perfect place. I can't promise you that <laughs> girls weren't hit on you, but, but girls tend to be a lot less, a lot less toxic or a lot less creepy on average. <laughs> um, but I, I really believe that part, like partying, whichever way, I'm personally not the biggest. I, I've been sober for over four, um, almost five years by now. Um, and my best idea of parties are meals and home stuff, but, but do something going out to people. Um, I, and I would say one final thing, it's important, find something that grounds you. For me, and I know it's going to sound very religious and almost like I'm doing a PR for Shabbat. I'm not. I honestly, and I've told you that before we started recording, my approach to Judaism to every religion is, you want to be Jewish, great, you are. You don't, great, you're not. You want to do <laughs> today and tomorrow, perfect, whatever you want to do, do. And I'm not, I'm not into proselytizing in any way or form, just in a personal way. And I'm using that more to show having something that grounds you. Before I came out and, and specifically five years ago, was like my hardest part. And I needed something to ground me and to force me to some extent to socialize, to force me to go out, to force me to talk to people. So I took on Friday night, Shabbat, where I started lighting candles. I haven't missed a week ever since, where every week, regardless where I am, where in the world I am. And at that time, by now, I still have to stick to it. And it's almost the opposite. Like at that time, I was going through and I would be like in this space where I don't want to do anything. and I don't want to talk to anyone, just want to be in bed. And it forced me to get up light candles and it forced me to do something which meant either going to a service or to a meal to both or sometimes it also meant just going out with friends to a bar or to a movie but going out and doing something dedicated for shabbat and now i still do it but now it's something it still helps me but sometimes it's in a total opposite way where i'm just like i don't know visiting japan which actually happened this year and i just need something to ground me on a friday night because i went from event to event and from meeting to meeting and you just want to Settle down. So regardless of how it is and in, in whatever is something that you find that works for you, do that and, and, and sticking to it. Sticking to it almost, I think it's the power of ritual outside of religion or what I call the boogeyman in the sky who wants you to do it, which is fine. If people believe in God, that's fine. If you don't, that's great. If you believe in whatever you want to believe in, that's not the point here. The point is of sticking to something and the power of it, of forcing you and whatever. For me, it's once a week. It could be a daily thing. It can be a I wouldn't say monthly, but should be at least weekly. And it's really helping. And yes, having fun also. Back to that part. Have fun. Have fun. Have fun. And celebrate. Celebrate. Enjoy. Well, on the note of celebrating, my final question for you, and we've covered a lot of them, so I know it might be tough to choose from the many, but what do you feel is one of your greatest accomplishments? Good one. I, I definitely feel like my book... Is a very strong one, very high up there. My son, obviously. I don't talk a lot in public a lot because that's his life, but definitely feels like it. Um, sacred space feels very, the, the, the space that I created. But but so many. Um, um, I don't know. I want to say, like, when I did the stuff with Vogue or with Intel, it felt a big accomplishment at the time. But now, I feel like now nothing does it anymore. Like, I don't have the, like, exotic experience anymore. Like I have that with meeting people or like, I don't know, like I would have to be interviewed by Oprah to feel like, ah, but yeah, but, and I, but I don't deny it. I do see a lot of the access that I've had and a lot of the exposure that I've had as at least partially some accomplishments. Yeah. I hope that covers it. That covers it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. This is so exciting. Thank you all for listening. For more information about Boss Ladies, go to www.bossladiespodcast.com. Also, check us out on Instagram 
at Boss Ladies Podcast. Check back soon for another episode of Boss Ladies. Boss Ladies.